So there are essential questions, there are games, there are just all kinds of things. And I'm hoping that you guys will hang with me and that we'll have a good time. So the first thing that I want you to notice about the array that you saw of neighbors in the game that we played is that there is a full spectrum from which you can find these neighbors. So the title at the very top, if you're following your sheet, it's the spectrum of neighborliness is the topic at the top. And what we're gonna do is to have a couple of essential questions. And if you're an educator, raise your hand. Okay, so for my educators in the house, you all are probably familiar with the term essential questions. For those of you who are not currently in the classroom, it means that when your class leaves for that day, they should walk away knowing whatever you've asked is your essential questions, they should walk away knowing. I told you, full-fledged teacher mode for a little bit. So, we are going to define what a neighbor is, and then we're not going to talk about who is your neighbor, which I feel like not only did Nicolette do a great job of explaining, we're going to talk about that some, but we're going to instead describe how can I be a neighbor ready to love? How can I be a neighbor ready to love? And then what is the neighbor spectrum and where do I fall? What is the neighbor spectrum and where do I fall? Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to try to do. And a good baseline definition for the term neighbor is a person who lives next to or near, and then a person in relation to someone else. And then this was found in a regular dictionary. It's any person in need of someone's help. And I thought, man, that's pretty profound to be found in a dictionary. Anyone who needs someone's help. So as we get into the conversation, I want to talk to you about the blind spots in identifying the neighborliness, because there are tons of them. And the blind spots are important for us to take note of because they occur by personal error. Personal error is how our blind spots happen to us. So I'm going to give you a few details about blind spots when you're actually driving blind spots that will attest to a little bit of what we're talking about today. So human error is the majority of the way that we find blind spots. And more than 800,000 blind spot accidents happen every single year and 300 deaths result from them. And one in five occur because drivers are changing lanes and they don't see the cars beside them. They don't see the cars beside them. So one of the leading causes of blind spots has to do with improper mirror alignment. What we do is that we're putting either ourselves or the side of our vehicle in the rear view and then the car mirror. That's what we're doing. And we're not looking far enough behind to see the cars. So it's narrowing our field of vision or gaze because we are not looking for the cars. It disorients us when we can't see ourselves as a natural human condition. So that disorientation and discomfort results in us changing the mirror with guess who? Us, okay? So a little bit of what happens is that a blind spot in loving your neighbor is seeing yourself. And that's a big piece of it. And so what we're trying to do is that we are thinking about ourselves and there are extremes in this concept of neighborliness. And the extremes pretty much happen from either the people that we don't see or the people with whom we are too familiar. The people that we don't see at all or the people with whom we are too familiar. 
And so we're going to get into this conversation about how these blind spots affect us and how they impact what it is that we're talking about. So there are tasks of neighbors, like what do neighbors actually do? How do we identify a real neighbor, which I think Nicolette did a great job of describing for us tonight? The practice of neighborliness, and then the God factor is what I'm calling it. And there's something else that God was showing me and teaching me through the process of talking with you all tonight. So we're gonna start with the task of a neighbor. And when we look at it in the Old and New Testament, there are 25 times that love your neighbor appears in scripture, 25 times. And they occur in both the Old and the New Testament, in both the Old and New Testament, which is profound. You think about how many times God repeats himself. And so for love your neighbor to appear in scripture that many times, meaning that there's an emphasis on it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are 613 Levitical laws. So all the laws in the Old Testament, about 613 of them. And they are narrowed down in the New Testament to how many? Two. Just two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it follows and says, there's no greater command than these. So when we try to think about what it looks like, what our job is, when we deal with our neighbor, it's to love them well, and to love them with all that we possibly can. So let's look at identifying a neighbor. And when we think about how we can identify a neighbor, I love the story in Luke 10, 25 through 37, and it, who do we guess it would describe? The Good Samaritan. So the backdrop to the story is that there's a lawyer who's asking Jesus questions, he's testing him, he wants to understand Jesus, he wants to follow him is what he's saying, and Jesus lays out all the things that he should do, that he should take care of the poor, that he should be kind, all of these things, and he says, essentially, well, I have done these things. And so what Jesus then proceeds to do is to tell him the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, we know that there's a person who has been abused, and this person who had been abused is left on the side of the road. And there are two people who pass him right by, a Levite and a priest. Now, why is that important? Because those are the very kinds of people who we think would love someone in need and love them well. But they are people who walk right past him. So the example of neighborliness that we see who's identified as a good neighbor is actually a, a person who is uncharacteristic for this group of people. He's a Samaritan, which means he doesn't think like them, he doesn't act like them, he doesn't have their traditions, their ways, and yet he is the one who stops, helps the man, bandages him up, takes him to a safe space, right? Cares for his needs, leaves him in a safe space, and then provides for him when he's gone. 
So this person who is not related to him, not affiliated with him, has nothing in common, is the one who stands as an example for us in scripture of a good neighbor. And that's important for us to know. And we'll come back to an example of how I got to see that in real time toward the end. So when we think about the third piece of this, which is the practice of neighborliness, I love the story of the good, of the Samaritan woman. And that one is found in John 4, verses 1 through 54. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's a beautiful, interesting story. It is a story of a woman who is very deliberately trying to stay away from people. She's at the well. She's at the well at hours when it's not traditional for people to gather at the well. She has been intentional with her decision to go at a time when there weren't other people there, and Jesus just happens to be at the well at that time. Now, we know that that's not happenstance. That's an appointment. And he's there without the disciples. And when they come upon him talking to this woman, it is disgraceful to them. They don't really know how to handle it. And what we know about this exchange between Jesus and the woman is that they were having a conversation about what the well meant. He requests water. She's offended that he would ask, how dare you ask me? They have a conversation about the well and it being a sacred space and all of the things. Well, this is what our people know about the well. It's Jacob's well and it's dug deep and it has power. And your people say that it's not appropriate. And there's this exchange that they're having and then Jesus reveals truth to her truth about her life, truth about where she is in her life. And when he does that, she's so compelled by the truth that he knows about her that she drops all her inhibitions and races right back into town, the very place she had obviously been trying to avoid. And at that point, the woman tells all the people in the town, you have to come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. The practice that we see of neighborliness is putting other before self. It didn't really matter at that point what she had done, what she was trying to keep separate. What mattered is that she believed that there was something so important for them to know that she could put herself down and show Jesus, and show them Jesus, so show them a savior. And that's an important piece. But those, all three of those components are things, quite honestly, that I'm sure you've heard before, I'm sure you've encountered before. In fact, I've taught on neighborliness and we've talked about some of those things before. But God had me on a journey, as he always does. And he was doing something that I couldn't exactly see. And some of that I call the God factor, the spectrum of neighborliness those with whom we don't see or are too familiar. And there is this spectrum in there that we are trying to understand. And it's pretty well established in Mark. And I love how God is so beautiful in his word and is so intentional in the way that he tells his stories. So what I'd love to do, you, there should be a chart that shows you the verses that we're going to look through. It's on your page, and it should be back here on the screen. But I'm going to set this up for you by reading some verses of Scripture. And what we find in Mark 
chapter 10. Is it Jesus in verses 32 through 34? It says that he predicts his death for a third time. So Jesus has not only shared what would happen to him once or twice, but this is a third time that he's sharing what would happen to him. And the verses of scripture read this. You have a breakdown for you to kind of gaze at, but you're free to pull it up on your phone if you'd like. They were on their way up to Jerusalem when Jesus, leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus took his closest people in the inner circle, and he told them in great detail exactly what would happen to him. The brutality that he would endure. He was vulnerable with his friends. And I want you to watch what happens in the next few verses. Literally verse 35, the very next verse, it says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And I want you to imagine for just a second, opening your heart and your grief and your hurt to close friends. And the response to that being, Hey, but I have a favor. What do you want me to do for you? That was Jesus' response. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my left, my right or my left, is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been prepared. Imagine being so close to Jesus that you would not see his pain. Imagine for a second what that would feel like. And yet he still had the wherewithal to ask them, what can I do for you? And look how beautiful God's word is. In the next few verses, verses 46 through 52, we meet a different character. Blind Bartimaeus. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting beside the road bedding. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. It's the same question. 
The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Two very different examples. Two very different crowds. Two very different responses. One too familiar. The other people would love to ignore and not see at all. And yet because of their heart posture, the responses could be so different. So when you think about Jesus pouring himself out, and when you think about what it would look like for him to ask, what do you want me to do for you? It wasn't just something that Jesus did, it was something that he lived. And it begins with others above ourselves. It is our willingness to be a neighbor ready to love. And that is exactly what Jesus exemplifies in all of it. It begins with the other above self. And it asks the same question of all in spite of relationship. The same question, different audiences, different results. It's not a matter of who is our neighbor, but rather our willingness to be a neighbor ready to love. So to be a neighbor ready to love, there are a few things that you have to do. You have to be present. You have to put yourself down. You have to be an active listener. You have to, you have to be willing to be interrupted in a grocery line. You have to make the inquiry, what can I do for you? And then you have to follow through and do what you say. In the verses that we looked at, we saw a part of the neighborly spectrum. Jesus would not only redefine who a neighbor was, but he would define differently what family was, what community was, what authority was, and how leadership would be used. Being neighborly for me is a minute by minute, moment by moment conversation. So for about 10 minutes, I wanna have each table, and you'll see a set of verses on the screen. And each table, it kinda identifies what your table and what verses of scripture that you're looking at. So table one, you will follow Jonah, and table two, Job, so on and so forth. Do you see that one? So I want you guys to read through the verses that are before you and have 10 minutes to have a conversation about where the people in the, in the verses that you see, where are they falling on this spectrum of neighborliness? Okay, good. I love the dialogue and conversation. I kind of love the deep digging and where you all went. And honestly, we can see transitions in people going from wonder and people going um, to almost annoyance with who Christ is and him being true to who he's always said he was. And this is honestly where the real, the real work begins. It's where are you on the spectrum? And we're gonna to get to that work, so we're not there quite yet. Where do you trend? And think about a list of people that you're either seeing um, in too familiar a lens or you're just not seeing at all. And so before I set you on that task of working in that way, I just wanna share with you the personal reflections um, because it, it is always something that God is not only teaching me, but he teaches me experientially, experientially, and that is so 
my need to learn in that way that's difficult and hard. And so, of course, we went through all of the teachings that he wanted to share with us. So I think most of you know that I am an introvert. And not only am I an introvert, but I call myself an introvert of introverts. Like, I am easily a person who would hide or turtle shell and stay away from center um, stage. And as a result of that, it's very easy for me to not see, seriously. And it's easy for me to not see actual people close to me, like my actual neighbors, the ones who live on the left and right and across the street. And that, to my credit, I don't know their names. But to my credit, the one name that I know lives on the right side of me. She also lived in my house, and that's kind of weird. Um, so I kind of stay away from that a bit. And of course, right this minute, I can't remember her name. But the other four, the two across the street and the other, the other three, they, they have moved. They've changed since we moved to our house. So like, I should know their names, but I don't. So that's a real thing for Dawn. Also, I'm a New York City girl. And so the people I drive beside, I don't always see real easily. Um, they kind of become a blur or an obstacle. It just depends on the mode and how much time I have. So that is really, really hard for me to see. And I'm working on that, I promise. Um, I don't catch license plates or cars. That's, I think, a Southern thing. At least I think so, because I'm a Northerner and I just don't see cars and recognize them. Um, people who are mean, I, 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 don't, I don't see well. Uh, people who say that they don't care, they really do. I, I, I just, I, I usually kind of shy away from and people who harm or mistreat or hurt any of the people that I love are really easy for me to not see. And that's not me saying something good, that's saying it's an area of work. That's an area that God is working with me to be better in. And the people who are overly familiar, um, there are lots of people who are familiar to me, but, but three of them come to mind that are in this room. One who has literally known me my entire life, who birthed me and knows every single thing about me. Um, and the other two I birthed. And so I know every stage of life that they are in and have gone through. And if you're a mom, consider it this way. Think about the time that your children actually thought that your life began and will end with their existence. <laughs> like, like, oh, you actually had an identity before mom, 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 right? And for those of you that do not have children, remember clearly, as I do, thinking that my mom had absolutely nothing better to do than to listen to my rants and to spend all of her time and money and talents and energy with me. Not, not even my sister, but with me. But they are actual, real life, becoming individuals and they have their own desires and personalities and needs and wants. And it would be easy to not see them. And I think what God had been doing 
is showing me that the extremes even that I thought I understood, it was not enough. It's, it's all the stuff in the middle. And so this is how this thing plays out for me. It's the God moment, because honestly, up until Friday, I had most of what I've said to you pretty much prepared. I had run through it once. I was like, well, God, you're going to do what you do. You always do. But there is a moment when it just becomes something more than extremes, which is how I was seeing it. And I think my table, as they wrestled through it, and it sounds like you guys, as you wrestled through it, you could see the muddle. It's more than just too familiar or I don't see. It's all this stuff in the middle. And this is how it came together for me. Friday night, I was trying to get ready. And I was like, man, it's just something missing. I don't know, Lord, what it is. I can't tell. I'm not sure. But the Wednesday before, I got a phone call from a surrogate daughter. Who's here? And I don't think she'd mind me sharing that she's struggling. And she's questioning. And she wants to understand the institution that is the church. And I get this call from her, and she's telling me the story. And I can tell something else is wrong. I can feel it in my soul the way that you can. And I'm like, what is wrong? And she starts to tell me a story about a young girl and how this girl was stalked and how the stalking led to fear and how the fear was brought before these people and how that fear she was left alone and she was beaten pretty severely and how she went to this girl and got her and took her in and then they were trying to go to the local police and then they were trying to go to the campus police and they're trying to figure out what to do with her and how to help her and instantly, without thinking, I went into mom mode. Are you being safe? Do you know his name? Do you know the description? Do you know what car he's in? Where is he now? Has she communicated everything with you? Are you watching your environment? Are you being okay? All of the mom mode. I mean, they're good questions. I'm a New York City girl. I don't play around. I need all the details. Like, girl, what is happening? Where are you? Talk to me, I need FaceTime, I, face, I need to see your face. I gotta understand. And then, I know she's coming to our house. I'm like, okay, the car can't be sitting outside because if he's watching y'all and y'all haven't caught it, then the car is now targeted our house. And we're a house of all girls. We can't have a house of all girls without real protection. And we can't do this, we, we gotta be safe. So put your car somewhere else and then we'll get you in and then we'll make sure everything's safe. We're good, we're safe. all of that conversation from Wednesday to Friday, and then on Friday, I see her face. And then all of that conversation, all of those questions became an actual face, a face that I love and that I'm concerned about. And at 4 a.m. Saturday morning, the Lord said, maybe now you can see. And finally, I saw. It wasn't just too familiar my safety, my household, or I don't know, I don't care. It was all the stuff in the middle. How many times had I asked about how the girl was? Maybe once or twice, maybe. 
Were the safety questions important? Of course they were. We do want to be safe, but I would beckon to say that the good Samaritan who came across a beaten man, he didn't know that those robbers were gonna come back. He was clearly on his way somewhere. He was being interrupted, he utilized his resources, and he cared for him at a time of need without inhibition, without question, without an expectation of being paid back. That's the one thing I didn't say. You acted as a neighbor, and God is not done with you. So all of your questions, and you're living out what it means to be a good neighbor. So it's not just an opposite spectrum. That's not what it is. It's all of the practical practice in the middle. That's what it has to be. That's the God piece. That we are living and we're present and we're watching for the opportunities to be a good neighbor. To be a neighbor ready to love. So as if all of those things weren't enough, I want to walk us through more scripture that edifies all of these things. And in Galatians 5.14, it says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Hebrews 13.1 and 2, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above ourselves. John 13.34, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Romans 13.9, the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So now we get to do some work. And the first part of it is just for you. It's time for you to just allow the spirit to sift through you. And there are three questions there. And I want you to consider those silently. And I'll give you five minutes to do that, and then our table leaders will end with your table discussion. So just five minutes. <laughs> 